0: didn't grow up Southern Baptist. And so for you, when we start talking about Lottie Moon and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, it's sort of a strange story for you. Others of you have heard about Lottie Moon from the time that you were in Sunbeams and Mission Friends and RAs and GAs, and you've learned her story and her ministry. But each year, Southern Baptists gather and meet, and worship, and particularly focus during the Christmas season on the global need of evangelism. And we have an offering that supports our missionaries carrying out that global exercise of taking the gospel to every creature. There's more than 5,000 full-time international missionaries supported by your regular giving, half of their support comes from the fact that you give week by week by week through the church to the cooperative program, Southern Baptist banding together for this cause of evangelism and missions. But half of the support of these 5,000 missionaries to the tune of about $175 million, that half is raised in about five weeks every year around Christmas. It's raised by our giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering for International Missions. Every penny that you give to that goes to the work of supporting and staffing our international missionaries all over the world. And Lottie Moon set an example in the late 1800s and early 1900s of sacrificial living and sacrificial giving to the global cause. You'll hear more about her story in the coming weeks as we tell you bit by bit, bit about her life and her ministry. But today I want to share with you just a quote that she gave in 1887 from Tung Chow, China. She said, How many there are who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing. Forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in bringing back a lost world to God. Our emphasis over the last several weeks, really two months, has been the emphasis to shine. And we've been reading together and studying together through the Sermon on the Mount and we've covered the Beatitudes and we've come back up to the core passage of the Sermon on the Mount and that passage being, let your light shine or shine your light before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But we need to set up how all of this is connected, how the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses one ...through 10 and 11, how that is connected with the Shine passage in verses 13 through 16. And so to do that, we need to go on a short journey to the book of Isaiah. Would you join me there? We're just going to hit two spots. We're going to visit there, pick up the context to which Jesus speaks. That journey will begin in Isaiah chapter 9 with a messianic promise. It is one of those promises that when we talk about Jesus being Messiah and fulfilling promises from the Old Testament, this is one of the most frequently spoken passages that reflects on His mission as the Messiah and also the glory of Jesus as God in the flesh. In verse 1 of Isaiah 9, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The, thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou shalt break the yoke of their burden from the and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppression as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult Cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts Will accomplish this. This was one of Isaiah's primary messianic passages describing the coming of Jesus and what that would be like. And he describes him as a light shining into the land of Israel and out into the land of the Gentiles. But something else happens Isaiah chapter 60. Join me there. Another messianic passage. From the prophecies of Isaiah. The first is about the light. Who the light is. The Messiah. The child born. On whose shoulders all of this work of redemption will rest. And all of the power of redemption will rest. And He will rule. But now, something is going to happen to the people. Because of something happening through the Messiah. He will come. And he will be the light, but that light will invade the hearts of his followers. And so something happens in Isaiah 60. Rise, verse 1, shine, for your light has come. So the Messiah arrives, he enters their hearts, and now they rise up and they begin to shine the news of the Messiah's arrival. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the glory of the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This now is the picture of the Messiah's reign. He comes... He enters the hearts of the people. And now, not just the Messiah will shine, but there will be a radiance in His people. And you say, Pastor Bart, put on the brakes a minute. Why did you just do that? Because that's what Matthew does to set up the Sermon on the Mount. Come back to Matthew chapter 4. Just before... Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew speaks of the fulfillment of the two prophecies that I just read. Matthew, having lived alongside of Jesus and having spent the time and heard the teaching and imparted by the Spirit of God to Him to understand, brings us to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Listen to this. Now, when... He heard that John had been taken into custody. Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Did we just not hear that? What happens? This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people were sitting in darkness, saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Here is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9 and 60. The Messiah, the light, arrives. That light enters the heart of his followers. And Isaiah 9 takes place. The government will rest on his shoulders. A child shall be born to us. And then Isaiah 60 is fulfilled. His disciples follow him. They believe in him. He enters their hearts. He enters their lives. Now they, Isaiah 60, rise and shine. And so what is that effect? Well, that's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. The first... Verses of the sermon, verses 3 through 12, are the verses that describe the character imparted when the light enters the heart of the believer. So the light comes, it's Jesus, Isaiah chapter 9. A child is born to us. And then that light enters the heart of his followers, the believers, and now... They're transformed. How are they transformed? They're transformed in their nature and in their reward. Now, instead of being sinners born under the wrath of God, they are transformed into believers giving the reward of God. What do they look like? Well, they're poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They look with gentleness upon the yoke of Christ, meekly submitting to His will. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful. They're pure in heart. They make peace whenever possible between God and man, between man and man. And they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, yet they rejoice. The light, has entered their hearts and they are different. And so now as we proceed into the second part of the Sermon on the Mount, leaving the Beatitudes, number one in your outline, we find out that Jesus' teaching demands that we settle the issue of our identity. This is an important transition in the book. When you get the Beatitudes at the beginning, it goes, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. Eight times it says, blessed are they. And then something happens. A transition, a turn. Something is different in verse 11. What does it say in verse 11 of Matthew 5? What does it say? Blessed are you. So at this moment, Jesus is calling them to settle the issue of their identity. Are you the ones who take this light, this Messiah, and bring Him by faith into your heart? Bring Him by trust into your life. Bring Him by confidence into your mind. Are you that person? It's been they up till now. They, they, they. They, they, they. They, they. And now He says, you. And the question we have to wrestle with and settle is this. Is that me? Everything else that we're going to read about is going to be contingent upon, based upon, rested upon, whether or not He's talking to you. And so there has to be this moment that we settle this issue. Have I, by faith, embraced the light who is Christ? And have I, through that faith, been marked by the effects of that light in me? Mourning, brokenness, meekness, merciful, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Does that describe me? I don't know if um, many of us Here, old enough to remember, a few of us are. The show called To Tell the Truth. Who remembers To Tell the Truth? Okay, it's not as foreign as I thought it would be. Most of those people were (laughs) post-20. That was kind. um, yeah. They brought three contestants out. And they had a set of, I guess you'd call them judges. There were four of them. And those four people had to ask questions of these three contestants to find out which person was telling the truth about who they were and what they were. Two of the contestants We're told lie all you want, lie liberally, lie every way you can to convince the people that you're the person that they're looking for, but one of you has to tell the truth in every single instance, and then these people have to figure out which one of you is actually telling the truth, and excluding two of you who are lying. And they would go through this series of questions. And then right at the very end, they would vote. The four people on the panel would vote who they thought was telling the truth and who they thought were the liars. And it was always pretty funny. And the audience would vote as well. And, and then they would have this little thing that happened every time and it said, well, I am. And the, one of the people would start to get up. And everybody go, and then they'd sit back down. Then the next person would start to get up and sit back down. Finally, the third person would actually stand up, and it was that person who'd been telling the truth. Now, what Jesus is doing here is He's saying, okay, to tell the truth. There is one person who knows you, and it's God. And He knows what the truth is about your real identity. And you need, to, you need to get serious about this because you're either going to embrace Jesus as the light and the Messiah and bring Him by faith into your heart and life, your mind and soul and live these things out as the truth or you're going to be a false contestant, a false professor, and you're going to convince many people that you're right, but at the end, the truth is going to come out. And so at this moment, Jesus is saying, okay, it's identity time. They, 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 okay, you. When Jesus changes it, He's now going to speak to His followers, to the born again, to the believer to the one who has by faith embraced him. And he's going to speak to them and he's going to speak about them. So the first thing that you and I have to do is settle our identity. When we settle that issue, then something comes to us, bam, in the face. What is it? Verse 13. Once you say, I am the you here in the passage. It's me, Jesus. I'm in. Then he turns and he says, okay, you in? Here's what I need to tell you. Two things. First, number one, letter A, you are the salt of the earth. He didn't say, be the salt of the earth. Mm -mm. He didn't say, I'd like for you to become the salt of the earth. When you embrace him, he says this, you are. Not maybe, not kind of, not might. You are. This is you. Everything that's going to go from here on is about Well, it's about you. So here he goes. You are the salt of the earth. And then he takes it further and he says in verse 14, second part of your identity, you are the light of the world. Not you can be, you might be, you may be, you could be. No. You settle this identity issue and you say, I have embraced Christ by faith. I have trusted in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. I am that guy. I am that guy. Yes. Then Jesus says, hang on, because He have got to tell you something. You are. And he uses the you are two times. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so we have to stop for a minute at this, and we have to turn these into I am statements. We have to personalize this. If Jesus is talking about the true followers and if we are his true followers, now it's time to go from a you to an I. Can you say with me, I am the salt of the earth. Can you take ownership of that responsibility? Can you? Say it with me. I am the salt of the earth. Of the earth, I'm taking ownership of that. What was the second one? I am the light of the world. I'm taking it. I am confessing it. I am possessing it. I'm not trying to use fancy language about this. I'm just saying that I must, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I must embrace this as truth. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. The responsibility here is beyond our comprehension. Think it through. There are more than 6,000 individual language-based people groups in the world that do not have any access to salt or light in spiritual things. And when I take on the responsibility of saying I am the salt, he doesn't say I'm the the salt of the church. He doesn't say I'm the salt of the House. He gives it global consequence. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. He says to us, and that leads us to number two, Jesus' teaching requires that we take interest in the condition of the inhabitants of the world. I have settled my identity. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I, by faith, have embraced His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. I believe He is God in flesh, Savior of the world, King to obey. I believe and I confess it openly. And so I say, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. And so now Jesus forces us into a corner. Because of his language, his teaching requires that we take interest in the condition of the inhabitants of the world. I want you to think about that. He's giving us a global commission at the beginning of his ministry, not just at the end. We hear the great commission. We know it. We we say it. Go therefore, well, the starts in verse 18, all authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know that it's the end of his ministry, but did you know he gave it to us at the beginning of his ministry? He made a global vision for compassion for the inhabitants of this world, this earth, at the very beginning, when you said, I do, He said, you are. That's what He said. When He said, they, 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 they have these promises, they will inherit the earth, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, they shall be comforted, they shall receive mercy, they shall be satisfied, when He... Said all that, and everybody clamored and said, I want that. Now, I embrace that. I embrace you. He said, okay, good. Now you are. And So with this calling to follow him comes this global, earthwide, worldwide responsibility. I now have to take interest in the condition of the inhabitants of the world. Why? Because of the illustrations that Jesus used. The illustrations in themselves tell us about the condition of the inhabitants. Letter A, the inhabitants of the earth are in a state of decay and dirtiness leading to death. I'll explain that fully in a moment, but that's what salt means. Salt was an agent of purity, an agent of preservation. And the idea that you, that I, that we are salt means He is taking the salt shaker of our churches and He's shaking it globally, worldwide, to cast us all over the earth to bring purity and preservation to that which is decaying and dying. That which is dirty and in the realm of death. Political, social, religious, personal turmoil. The videos we watch today remind us of how rampantly broken our world is. Everywhere we look, our news is filled with brokenness and sorrow and death and dying and despair. We saw from Genesis that it reaches in and breaks the nucleus of homes and then it busts the relationships of the nearest of kin. Cain murdering Abel and then neighbor kills neighbor. Islamic kills these men and then nations go to war and we see that the corruption of sin decays everything and everything is dying and everything is dirtied by sin. So, the inhabitants of this earth are in a state of decay and dirtiness leading to death. And who is engaging you? Jesus is, because he says you are salt. But further. The inhabitants of the world are walking in darkness that leads to death. Letter B, inhabitants of the world. So Jesus uses these two terms, earth and world, because it is made up of inhabitants who are in a condition of decay and darkness, both which lead to death. And he says, you guys, you're bringing the answer. That's what you're doing. You're bringing the answer. You're bringing the answer of light to those in the darkness. And you're bringing the answer of salt to those who are decaying. Because both of those are leading to death. You're bringing the answer. You are. Not you'll become. Not you'll be. You are the salt of this globe. This earth. You are the light of this world. It's you. So there has to be, burning in our hearts, a real compassion for the condition of people who are in darkness and decay. Whether that's in my neighborhood, at my neighbor's house, or in the nations where the language doesn't even have scriptures yet. I have to be concerned because of where they're going in their darkness and in their decay, they are dying and they are going to hell. A real, inescapable, literal fire of eternal torment. And those in decay and in darkness, they're headed there, said Jesus, sprinkles salt and spreads light. And He does it through us. And so, here, a quote from Lottie Moon that's in your handout. Thirty miles from Pingtu City is a gold mine "'nestled close among low-lying hills "'are two foreign houses and buildings over the mine. "'Several American miners are there "'in the employ of the Chinese government.'" These men are living a hard, dull, isolated life in a remote region, far from home and friends, with the sole purpose of worldly gain, so much for the devotees of mammon. One cannot help asking, sadly, why is the love of gold more potent than the love of souls? Can we stop there? Have we thought about Why is it more important to earn a living than it is to bring a soul to Christ? He says here, the number of men mining and prospecting for gold in Shantung is more than double the number of men representing Southern Baptists. What a lesson for Southern Baptists to ponder. Think about. it. That it would be more joyful to pursue the labor of hardship to get worldly gold than to pursue the labor of hardship to bring souls to Jesus. She wrote that in February of 1889. So what do we do? We're kind of at a point here, okay? Okay. We know we've settled our identity. I think you're with me. I think you're saying, I own this. I'm salt. I'm the salt of the earth. I'm the light of the world. I own it. And 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 you're telling me that there's a reason Jesus used salt, yeah? Because they're in decay leading to death. There's a reason Jesus used light, because they're in darkness leading to death. And 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 I'm toting the answer. I'm carrying the answer. So, so, how am I going to deal with that? Well, here's how. He tells us. So, number three, Jesus' is teaching commands us, okay? Stop right there. Commands us to be a redeeming influence on the inhabitants of the world. This is the calling. What does he say? He says it you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the salt of the earth. Letter A, salt influences its surroundings. Now, here's the danger. The danger is is that our church becomes like a salt shaker where everybody huddles up and nobody gets shaken out into the world. That we love the insulation of the salt shaker. It's safe, all kind of clumped up together. It's kinda, it's kinda okay there, but that's not what Jesus called us. He wants the church to be this giant salt shaker, where He takes and He shakes that salt from one end of the earth to the other, spreading the salt into these surroundings, because salt influences its surroundings. Number one, salt purifies what it accompanies. Now, this was interesting in the Old Testament. Every time an offering was given, it was said to have needed to be accompanied by salt because salt was a picture of purity. In fact, Jesus uses this line in the book of Mark. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. That means purified by fire. So the very first thing is that salt is a picture of purity. You are the purity in these beautiful passages of the Beatitudes This pure in heart, this is you and your character and your nature. And the Lord wants to take you out and purify what it accompanies like salt purifies the sacrifice it accompanies. Second, salt preserves what it envelops when they would bring the fish in as those fish would come in. As soon as the fish came out of the water, they would take these barrels and they would spread salt in the bottom of the barrel and a layer of fish and then a layer of salt, layer of fish, layer of salt, layer of fish. The Egyptians had perfected this long before the time of Jesus, and they actually used it to ship vegetables and to ship meats from Egypt to other countries by salting them. And so they would salt these things and it would preserve them so they wouldn't go bad. They would be fit for consumption. God shakes us out into our families, our neighborhoods, our schools. He shakes us out into our businesses and He shakes us out into the marketplace and He shakes us out upon the globe so that we will envelop and preserve a rotting world. And that our job is to envelop. It's important because immediate response is needed. Time is not our friend in this matter. The longer the salt stays away from the meat, the more the meat decays before the salt comes in contact. I wonder country by country, nation by nation, people group by people group, language group by language group. How many have decayed to a point of irreparability because Christians were too comfortable in the salt shaker and afraid to be sprinkled across the globe? Salt is third, pleasing to the taste. There's something interesting about how Jesus says this in verse 13. And it took me a lot of digging to find out why this was so. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how will it be made salty again? Now, that was a weird statement because I've never had my salt go bad. <laughs> Now, it's important to understand the grammar that is used here. The grammar of becomes tasteless is a passive verb. It means something makes it. And the word tasteless there is the word that we get moron from. It means to be foul. It means to be more than just without flavor. It means to be tainted. If somebody calls you a moron, they're not necessarily saying you're without flavor. They're saying something much worse. The word that is used here is a passive verb to be made moronic. It means to be made unsavory. You've used that word before, probably. You said this unsavory character came by my work today, or this unsavory character was in our neighborhood today. We know that unsavory doesn't just mean tasteless. It means something far worse. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus' use of this verb here is he says this, salt that has become unsavory is no good. Now, how does salt become unsavory? That's a really good question. And I had to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig to find this. The salt in Jesus' time, much of it came from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, where the concentration of salt there is so high that it, nothing lives inside that, that body of water, nothing of value anyway. And this salt is all around it, and it's called the Great Salt Sea. But the interesting thing is that regular seawater Right, normal seawater is 97 to 98% sodium chloride, table salt, in the salt descendants. So if you dry out regular seawater, 97, 98% of what you get is table salt, sodium chloride, what you put on your food. That's what sea salt has that good flavor because it's primarily the same kind of salt you dig out of a cave or a cavern that's a salt mine. But the Dead Sea salt is only 12 to 18% sodium chloride. The rest of it is potassium, calcium, magnesium, and bromines. And it has to be collected in a very particular way. During Jesus' time, salt was very expensive. And so having good pure salt was a luxury and it was an expense. In fact, during the Roman rule, the word salary came from the word salaria, which meant salt because people could actually be paid with salt because it was so valuable. And so it was something very valuable. And so crooked people would go to the Dead Sea and they wouldn't collect it properly. Since only this small percentage, 18, 20 percent at the max of what you see sitting there by the Dead Sea is good salt, table salt then you have to do it very carefully to collect only the top part and then to sort the crystals carefully that you didn't get some of the bromines in it and the potassiums and the other things that would make it taste very bitter and make it unusable, in fact, nearly poisonous. You would have to be very careful. Well, a lot of not-so-nice businessmen would go and they would collect all of it and then they would sell it in a container and just the top part would have pure salt on it. So that when you went to the marketplace, you got the container and you... You did the taste test. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to the taste test. Where you bought your salt, you touch it in there, and you touch it in your tongue. And if it tasted good and salty, well, it was good. But if it tasted bitter, then it was bad. In fact, it was nearly poisonous. And so it was good for nothing. Because what was mixed in it was not just salt, it was bromines, potassium, chlorides that were not bonded to sodium but bonded to calcium and magnesium. And so they would be bitter. And so Jesus would say, you know, some people would discover this in the marketplace. They were smart enough that when they got to the unscrupulous salt salesman, they would stir it up a little bit and then they would taste it and say, oh, no, 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 you're not selling me that junk. Come on, you're not doing that to me. And then some of it, would be tricked and you would not find it out until you got home. And you'd get home and you'd be getting the salt out and getting ready to put it over the fish and you'd test it one more time and realize that after that first little layer, you got into the bad stuff and you ruined your fish. You poisoned it. And there was only one thing you could do with it then. You could use it to kill grass. So you would take it out into a trail or the street and use it as poison to kill weeds. Here's what Jesus is saying. You're the salt of the earth. But if you are tainted, not only are you ineffective in preservation, you become a poison. Wow. He was dead serious with his disciples. Why? You remember Jesus having a conversation saying, if you are going to cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you if someone did what to you? Tied an upper millstone to your neck and threw you into the sea. Why? Because pretend believers poison people with their hypocrisy. And so Jesus was saying, do not be dead sea salt with this layer of poison just under your surface and the flavor of salt on the surface. It will find you out and it will make you, it will render your influence. One of the worst things that can ever be said to a person is to be said, right now, you're good for nothing. What Jesus was saying is that the damage of this intentional tainting and hypocrisy was going to hurt other people. And so he gives this warning. So what does he do after that? He deals with the light. I will hurry to the end of this and give us something to take home. Light influences its location. What does he say? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So number one, light is inviting. How many of you remember the Motel 6 pledge at Tom Bodette? I'm Tom Bodette from Motel 6 and Will. Why did he keep the light on for you? Because light is inviting. Light says, come on. That's what you're to be. Light is inviting a city set on a hill. The traveler can locate it and he can get there and get inside the walls of the city to safety because the city's on a hill and it can't be hidden and so it invites him to come and to be safe. That's what the church should be like. Our unity of the candle power of our unity in Christ should shine to this city and people driving by the church ought to see the city on a hill and say, Ah! A refuge! That's where I want it. And so light is inviting. Hotel Six just recently did their 50th anniversary and their new slogan, rather than we'll leave the light on for you, it's 50 years and the light's still on. Isn't that great? Wouldn't that be great about your Christian testimony? However many years you've been saved and the light's still on, inviting people to Christ. Number two, light is invading the darkness. Jesus says here, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. What Jesus does is He sends you and places you and sets you in a unique place for you so that you shine. It invades the darkness. The darkness can't stop it. It's not going to be under a peck measure. It's going to be on the lampstand and God is going to set you there. And number three, light is illuminating the truth. What do we do? Well, you saw when Levi tried to go from one place to the other, what did he do? That was very unintentional, but what did he do? He, he, was, he fell off the edge. I wonder how many people are falling off the edge right now because they're in the darkness and we've got our flashlight put away. Our neighbors in our neighborhoods, our co-workers at work, they're falling off the edge. And they're falling into an abyss that's far worse than falling down the stairs of the church altar. Light is illuminating. It shows the truth. These people sitting in darkness, a great light has shown. It is the light of Christ and salvation. So what do we do with this, my brothers and sisters? We have to walk through three things. I put it at the bottom of your outline. Head, heart, and hands. Head, you and I have to store right up here in our mental thinking. I am the salt of the earth. We have to get that down. I am the light of the world. Not him. Not her. Not that one. They're not going to do my job. It's not them. It's not those. It's I, I own this, and I'm going to store this in my mind and keep it there. In my head, I am convinced. But it can't stay in my head. I need it to go to my heart. The whole reason that I'm salt and I'm light is the inhabitants of this earth are decaying to death. And they're walking in darkness into death. And my heart should be broken. My heart. When Jesus saw the multitudes, it, it says that he saw them like sheep without a shepherd and he was moved with compassion. When he saw them injured, it says his heart was moved with compassion and he healed them. When he saw Jerusalem rebelling, it says that he wept and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the stones, the prophets, how often I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. There's compassion in the heart of Jesus. In our hearts, we should be moved with compassion that the reason we're salt is they are decaying. They are putrefying. And the reason we're alive is there in darkness, and they're dying. And something should happen when our head and our heart connects. It goes to our hands, and we say this. We pray this. Listen, it's very simple. God, shake me out of this salt shaker into the place you want me to land. And stand me on the lampstand in the place you want me to shine. And I'll do whatever you say. That's very simple. Would you bow with me? Shaken. Shining. But we have to go back to the identity. I I just believe that there probably... As in every time we gather some folks that are here today and your identity is not in Christ. You're not saved. You've not received Him by faith in what He has done and repentance from what you have done. And so I want to encourage you and invite you to come to Jesus today. To see Him as the light and to embrace Him as the light and to receive Him as your God, Savior, and King. God in the flesh, sinless, perfect, Savior of all mankind, dying for sinners and sin. King, resurrected on His throne to be obeyed. Would you receive Him today? And say, oh God, let my identity be Jesus. Let His light enter my heart, my mind, my soul. I repent of my sins and I place my faith in Jesus. God, save then you can come and shine today. You can walk right down here and let these folks know you've received Christ and begin your shining and shaking right now. Some of you, you've been living with a bushel basket over your head. Hide it under a bushel? No! I'm going to let it shine. Except now. And I'm hidden. Something's going on in your life. Some sin. Some temptation. Some... Passion, and you have hidden the light so that you can carry on in a dark place with what you're doing. God says no. He wants to jerk that basket off your head and set you back on your lampstand. But that can only be done through repentance and dealing with what it is. Maybe it's bitterness, anger, malice, wrath, envy. Maybe it's some temptation you've been constantly falling to and you've given in in such a way that you're no longer battling. Maybe it's something that's just been hanging on for a long time. Or it could be something that just started this week. Would you walk away from that and into the light and say, Jesus, I want to shine. Get this basket off of me and set me on the lampstand you want me to be on. Would you do that now? Others? You've been in the comfort of the salt shaker at your house at your church but God wants to shake you out into a new place in the world it may just be in your neighbor's house he may just want to shake you out over there or it may be in the nations God wants to shake you out and make you a missionary global not just local would you say yes to him today and just say Lord shake me and shine me I'm yours would you stand Would you obey His voice in your heart? Would you come?